Welcome to Scroundup. It is said that this is the best of times for human disease genomics. In the coming years, due to advances in technology, massive genomic data sets from human patients and controls will likely be created along with advanced mechanisms for the analysis and integration of a wide variety of genomic data types. As a result, we will see not only continued growth in the number of disease genes identified, but also a deepening of our understanding of the fundamental genetic architecture and human disease states. So what will be the meaning of human disease genomic data and what, will, what is the meaning of all these advances? What would be required to understand and evaluate massive genomic data that is being created? It seems that because of the massive increase in genomic data availability, the race to build a search engine for human DNA is on its way. It is important that we evaluate the complex security risks that emerges with the availability of massive human genomic data to publicly. To discuss the genomic search engine and its associated security risk further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Mark Kyle to Risk Roundup. Dr. Mark Kyle is the founder and chief scientific officer of Genominon and is based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Kyle. We're honored to have you on Risk Roundup. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. So as obtaining and decoding an individual's entire genome has become so easy, rapid, and affordable, genome companies are trying to be the search engine for personalized medicine. What impact do you see because of the growing database of genetic information? Well, there's two possible impacts to parse. Uh, the first would be the positive impact, and that's what I hope to spend the majority of time talking about and what is germane to genomenon. But then also there's the, the negative impact, which at present is largely hypothetical, but it's important to be mindful of those potential risks and be foresighted about what technological advances may be occasioning in the future. So to discuss the former, understanding a patient's genome allows us to diagnose existing diseases, predict risks associated with eventual diseases, as well as to understand pre-symptomatic diseases in certain situations. And so genome sequencing opens up a whole host of new endeavors within the field of medicine generally that have to do with understanding what disease processes may be going on, how bad they are, and how most effectively to treat them. That, that is fundamental and that's the knowledge that we require because unless we understand all that, you know, fundamentally, it is very difficult to come up with the holistic way or come up with the root cause of managing those uh, disease risks and databases that are being generated because of this genetic information are growing by terabytes. There is so much information that is available and healthcare professionals are in a desperate need of a way to efficiently sift through all that information for the cause of any particular disorder or to have any clue to how patients might respond to treatment. We are coming up with all these different treatments, but we don't know how each individual patient is going to uh, respond to that. And we are just having one size fit approach for all disease and disease uh, treatments that may not be the best way to go forward. So this is going to be very, very helpful. Now, while intense efforts are going on to build the DNA search engine, and there are so many initiatives to build proprietary databases of genetic information. Most genomic organizations are working to link enough genetic databases so that users, 
it could be right. any user, healthcare professional, they can quickly identify a huge variety of mutation. Now, right. what potential will genomic search engines bring today and in the coming tomorrow? So um, I like to consider big data in the age of, of information to be more of a challenge in biology that needs to be solved before we can unlock the value. And so there is a hyper proliferation of databases that are publicly available or proprietary uh, or an admixture that are coming from empirical studies or statistical studies that are either clinical or experimental. And that's actually posing a challenge within clinical medicine where there's a high predicate on times, especially for treating diseases with high acuity, but also preserving the accuracy of the analysis. And so with genome sequencing, you're, you're bringing into this diagnostic challenge many orders of magnitude more data, even within molecular genetics, than had previously been um, uh, required to make diagnoses. And so there is this greater access to the data, but the real challenge is in understanding what that data means. And as you, as you suggest, to put a finer point on it, what it means in the context of an individual. So that's the essence of personalized medicine. Specific disease does this patient have at the genetic level? And what is the most efficacious therapy for that particular individual that we can bring to their care? And all of those databases right now, while helpful in isolation and after the fact, once you've found the meaningful data from them, uh, they're posing significant challenges to data interpretation, where data production and even data processing are fairly straightforward at this stage, believe it or not, even though the first genome sequence occurred maybe 15 years ago, we're able to much more routinely sequence an entire patient's genome the real challenge now is not in getting that data and even not annotating that data, but rather interpreting that data. And as you point out, holistically interpreting that data. Yes, very true. And that Pardon me, that's really where the challenge and, and opportunity lies within this uh, field of, of genome sequencing. Absolutely. And you made the really, you know, interesting point there. At the, while we still, you know, have, uh, are developing that in-depth understanding of all the genomic data, when will that gene get, you know, activated? When the gene expression would happen? The biochemistry around it, which, you know, environment is going to be conducive for that particular gene to be activated or to express? Those are still, you know, a lot of questions around that. And we need to understand that because it's possible that, you know, two, two different individuals have the same kind of genetic uh, data, but at the same time, they both have little different biochemistry. Their environment is different. You know, the ecosystem is different uh, inside the body and that those are the you know areas where we still are have to you know focus what will you know trigger these genes right. because just understanding genes is not going to be enough now right. that is an entirely different topic we can discuss that you know probably in some other risk roundup but over the years remarkable progress has been made in the identification and functional characterization of dna sequence variants associated with so many human diseases now, with the arrival of these genome scale approaches for testing variant association to human diseases and their application to increasingly large sample sets, it has transformed our ability to identify alleles underlying rare and common diseases you know, alike. So while it has brought 
us an ability to identify alleles and derive rare and common diseases? Do we currently have potential for identifying engineered pathogens that can be used in biowarfare? Is there a way to identify that these are engineered pathogens and these are natural pathogens that we come across with? Is, do we have the capability? We do, and so that's an emerging field. Um, I hesitate to say emerging. I'm not a practitioner of this field, and it's been around in some version or another for a long time, but all um, advances in genome sequencing have allowed there to be this great proliferation of data and understanding in the field of um, in, indigenous flora as well as pathogenic flora. That's called metagenomics. And uh, both of those are operant. What, what composition of your, your um, bacterial environment in various body systems like the gastrointestinal tract, the oral flora, uh, genital urinary uh, flora, what is the most appropriate composition of those symbiotes in order to foster maximal health? And conversely, what changes are occasioned by various disease states. And so this new technology has allowed us to, to get a much greater understanding of the role that is played by things outside yourself. They're genomic in nature, but they're not the human genome that's influencing disease states. Those are other organisms that we live in concert with or in disease states where there's some disharmony between amounts of certain species or the presence of, of exogenous species. Oh, that is good to know. So do you, if a, let's say a very, very smart computer scientist develops a genetic data from scratch and he portion of that genome and then picks up, you know, a portion of genes from humans, portion of genes from some animals or insects, I mean, that it is possible with the CRISPR technology now to take bits and pieces from anything and then collectively create an entirely new organism from scratch. So with the, while, you know, we are not going in depth in that discussion uh, in this roundup, do we, do you think that uh, we will have the capability to identify that this is the, you know, code that was written by a scientist. This is the, you know, gene that comes from this animal or that, you know, insect, or this is, you know, a human genome. We will have the capability to identify all that. So I don't, there's a couple of things to unpack there. I'm not certain that we would be able to decode the origin of any sort of uh, genetic biological warfare. Uh, but I did want to illuminate some aspects of, of what you just um, described in that question. The first is to say that we are creating synthetic organisms. Craig Venter, who um, was the first, along with Francis Collins, to sequence the human genome, has undertaken this new initiative of synthetic biology, creating a self-life form from scratch. The first thing that I'd like to say is that that future is already occurring. There are uh, benign, uh, actually altruistic or, or uh, positive aspects to the, the research that's being done by the Venter Institute, but there's also the potential for, um, for malicious intent. Um, the other thing to say is that this is not really a new aspect of biology. What is new is that we're able, as humans, we're able to intervene and, and take control over these. And the, the example that I'll, I'll um, alert your your viewers to is the Rouse sarcoma virus, 
which is actually uh, causative of malignancy in uh, host organisms that actually originated in a separate species and was propagated through viral vectors. And so when viruses infect a host, they pass their genetic material that interpolates in, in some way or another into that host organism. And then when they propagate, they can take some of that host's material. And, and that's one of the mechanisms by which viruses mutate and uh, take advantage of certain situations to grow stronger and more efficacious at infection. And so with particular relevance to the way that those bioterrorist weapons can be engineered, it's just DNA sequence, right? It's A's, T's, G's, and C's with some slight modifications, but it would be very difficult to disentangle any sort of barcode or signature say with complicated computer code where you can tell where it's coming from and you can understand the style in which it's written when you're talking about um, biohazardous genetic material it is simply coming from the sequence of those letters which is very difficult to uh, understand the provenance of and so that's a well, major, that's major concern go ahead well um, that, that was pretty much what I wanted to say other than we can perhaps discuss a little bit more about CRISPR. So CRISPR is um, it's a technology that I'm less familiar with. I'm certainly not familiar with it for my own personal work, um, but it certainly has the great potential to inform positive genetic uh, therapeutic interventions, whereas previous uh, versions of genetic therapy relied heavily on some native uh, viral transmission technologies. And there were challenges associated with it for the reasons that we just uh, discussed. But with CRISPR, afforded the ability with this technology to make precision changes in genetic material. And with that precision, and with the sort of facility with which you can make those changes, comes the great specter of potential um, um, malfeasance in the wrong hands. I don't want to get too speculative. Those things um, are not currently uh, under anybody's um, radar scope. But as we discussed earlier, it's important to have those in your mind and understand what those potentials may be at some future stage. Absolutely, absolutely. And you made a very interesting point. I, as far as CRISPR technology goes, it brings us so much potential. We will probably be able to have bioeconomy because of uh, that particular technology because we'll be able to uh, in produce anything by create uh, you know having that uh, genetic information and translating that into antimicrobes shells and you know be able to produce any product that any you know chemical biochemical product that we are looking for so the potential is huge and the first right. point that you made about uh, not being able to de you know synthesize that where the genome would be coming for at, at this point of course we don't have that capability because it would require us to have the genetic information from each and every you know animal insect and uh, humans so to be able to quickly identify whether you know these genes where are these genes coming from and that would require probably a lot of advances a lot of research a lot of data collection and uh, maybe you know in the next century but at this point we don't have that capability so you are absolutely right that's a very uh, good point now when we talk about broadly the human genome research that is going on what is the central objective at this point right so you already touched upon it 
Uh, it, just very simply put, it's to understand the role that genes play in causing or modifying the development of human disease. And this technology, the technological advance occasioned by genome sequencing has allowed us to understand at a much broader scale and much more quickly what otherwise took many decades to understand at a per gene level, now we're able to understand um, the answers to these questions in massive throughput. And so not only are we able to sequence more data per patient or per cohort of patients or per experiment, but we're also able to sequence many more of those cohorts because of the decreases in the expense associated with that technology and also, and parallel and just as important, the decrease in the amount of time it takes to produce that data. So those two aspects have led to this explosion in genomic knowledge and genomic understanding. Uh, and effectively, what is required of a researcher at this point is to simply think of a question. And the technology has become commoditized and at least the potential to have answers has become very straightforward. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that gap between getting the data and understanding what that data means. That's really where Genomenon is, is poised to make a great difference in this space. Um, but things that were otherwise inconceivable only a matter of a couple years ago are now routine research and clinical practice. And the research is definitely informing the clinical um, applications of this new knowledge which then feeds back into the research. So it's this very rapid sort of recursive loop of the research informing clinical treatment and that clinical treatment and those outcomes informing new research. And so it's a great tool, genome sequencing, to facilitate a greater understanding of, of um, the role that genes play in causing disease. Yes, no, that's a very good explanation. Now, do we have enough technological capability to be able to advance the precision medicine or, you know, genomic, uh, uh, diagnostic genomics uh, broadly? Or do we still uh, need certain technological advances to happen to have effective, you know, meaningful uh, changes to the uh, or advances in the diagnostic genomics? Sure. So, so well, you said diagnostic genomics, and so I'll stick there, but then I'll try to expand that question a little bit more to where I think people are actually most optimistic about genome sequencing, which is to say um, leveraging that knowledge for informing treatment. And so with respect to diagnostic genom genomics, we're able to produce that data we're able to process that data, and those are sort of equivalent parts of that engine. Producing the data and processing the data are about as, as, as um, costly in routine practice, but the, what remains then is to interpret that data, and that goes back to what we talked about before with these, these warehouses of data from, um, from empirical studies or clinical studies or statistical studies, and the annotation of the data that comes from these cohorts or these individual patients, somebody's at present got to look at that information. And that was the real limiting, the rate limiting step. And not just the rate limiting step, but it's really the most fundamental challenge in terms of getting the data right. Understanding it in its full sort of um, uh, landscape view of a patient or a cohort of patients making sense of that data and making sense of that data in, in um, 
context of what is already known or what that data allows you to speculate maybe uh, causative or, or the, the disease gene relationship that we were talking about earlier, that's really the challenge. Um, but then to enlarge that, because when you say diagnostic genomics, that's just being able to understand what is going on. But beyond that, you want to know what to do about it. And so that's where there's the most hope in genomics, and that is a more difficult challenge because it doesn't really lend itself to scale, at least not as, as dramatically as genome sequencing or data production does. And so those future aspects are where there's a great deal of energy devoted within in the research community to try to bring scale of the, the sort of diseases that we've uncovered the cause of genetically, and that is the very essence of personalized or precision medicine. We know what causes this disease at the molecular level, and we have a specific agent that can precisely target that lesion without causing collateral damage to other organ systems or other cell types. So that's a fuller picture of the promise of genomic sequencing beyond just understanding who's got what and why, but more fully, what are we going to be able to do about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And you made a very, very excellent point. So that genome interpretation is the key. So how will building genomic variant knowledge base benefit the healthcare providers or, you know, help to get us the better in understanding or interpretation of the genome? Right. So as I, as I described, that data interpretation is right now the bottleneck. So that is what limits the, the speed with which the data can be interpreted. It also um, limits the, the amount of data that can be analyzed be, from a sort of economics perspective. It is right now a manual process, and these, these people are highly trained. They're extremely rare because of the, the newness of this technology and because there's never been so much demand in, in the past. And so right now there's sort of this human bottleneck of people who are trained well enough in understanding this data who can interpret this information. So it takes a long time. The people who can do it are hard to come by and more fully, and to, to talk about things that we may touch on later, uh, there's a fundamental limitation in the ability for one curator to understand the entire genome in all its complexity. And so right now we have specializations among variant scientists or geneticists or pathologists. But increasingly we're understanding that there's a lot of overlap between different diseases and certainly a lot of overlap between genetic pathways that are very difficult for one individual to fully comprehend. And so taking a step back and looking at the data holistically is made challenging by, by the complexity of the data itself in terms of the data format and the sheer size of this data. But then further, you layer on top of that, it's complicated biology, where we need to reach into the empirical literature and understand what has been known uh, or is newly becoming known from that scientific literature, bringing all of that knowledge to bear in making your, your interpretation of the data that's really a fundamental challenge in this space. And as I say, that's what Genomenon is really focused on addressing. 
So how do you see a genomic library with published scientific articles from medical literature benefiting the medical community? Because at this point, as you said, you are get, getting the data from the uh, published, you know, uh, literature. Is, is there everything that is being published, all the data analysis uh, or the advances are happening in collecting the genomic data? Are, is all that uh, publicly available, that uh, knowledge and information? That's a great question. There's there are things that are unknown as yet, uh, but you've heard of evidence-based medicine. That is the way that particularly molecular genetics is practiced. It is very difficult um, for a clinician to speculate on a, a situation when the, the therapies that are going to be um, utilized for patient care may come with untoward complications you can't be cavalier about what this patient has at the genetic level and what therapies to uh, leverage for their care. And so the way that uh, clinical genetics is practiced now is based on empirical evidence. And that empirical evidence is best codified in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. So we like to talk about the quality of the evidence for a disease gene or um, disease gene variant relationship, if, if that evidence is well supported in the medical literature, the clinician can have greater confidence in making their decisions about diagnosis and therapy and, and patient outcomes. If, in contrast, the data is scanty or non-existent, or the clinician is left only to speculate, you as a clinician have less ground to stand on and less confidence in your decisions. And so what Genomenon is doing as a predicate for understanding the entirety of the, the genome of a patient, even in the absence of existing data, is those first steps, is let's get this data from the medical literature more readily accessible. So that's the first step is where is this data that would be most useful? The next step, and, and what we're taking strides to solve as well, is better organizing that data to make more informed and more accurate decisions. And so that is where you're starting to bring to bear some uh, machine learning techniques of understanding what a human curator is looking for and having the, the computational aspects of your data processing do as much of that pre-cogitation as possible without, and I, this is an important caveat, without having the computer take over the entire workflow. And so I feel like for a long time to come, there will always be the need for a human with their clinical acumen and understanding of the sort of uh, complexities of the clinical context to render their own conclusion. But what we're striving for is um, a future date in which more and more of that information gathering and refinement and assessment is being done computationally. That, that's a very excellent point you made. And that would be amazing to see the machine learning uh, getting involved into understanding where the healthcare professionals and providers are facing complex challenges and where it could automate the process effectively so that it helps healthcare providers in understanding the whole genome sequencing and uh, the interpretation in a much better, much uh, user-friendly manner, that would be probably uh, 
very useful. So uh, is, are those the challenges the healthcare providers facing currently or uh, do they have understanding of, uh, see medicine, you know, medical providers, healthcare providers, they don't necessarily have training into this uh, whole genome sequences, how to interpret that and, uh, you know, make some sense out of, you know, where to focus or what kind of information they are looking for. So how are, is there some initiative going on to provide uh, an in-depth understanding about this whole genome sequencing and how to interpret that? Because all the data could be available on, on the organization, by organizations like yours, Genomenon. You provide all the information, but do healthcare professionals have an ability to interpret that data? Great points, very great points. So this is rarefied air that we're talking about. Uh, and there are, there are, um, specialists who have devoted their careers to understanding this information. And so when you think about a clinician, there's um, clinicians who intervene in patient care at different levels. There's the physician that you see routinely for your, your um, periodic healthcare and, and intervention. And then there are specialists that that uh, primary care physician can send your, your casework to in the event that something comes up that's outside of their sphere of, of understanding. Typically, those are molecular pathologists or geneticists when we're talking about a genetic disorder. And so even within that specialty in medicine, the, the accelerated pace of technological advance has been so brisk, it has been unprecedentedly brisk. It supersedes Moore's law for semiconductor uh, advances science and technology have literally never seen such an accelerated pace of development. And the medical community is, is typically um, a conservative in its movements for obvious reasons. But there's such a great potential for benefit that there has been this sort of um, um, requirement for our community as molecular geneticists and, and pathologists to adapt to adapt from getting a paper requisition to getting an external hard drive with terabytes of data. And so those efforts are underfoot and it's, it's been a challenge uh, because the medical training takes so long. And this is, as I said, a very specialized field and we need more people to populate this field. And so I wanna be clear that most of this data would not be interrogated by a primary care physician, at least not at, at the level that we're talking about for, for this um, discussion. Most of this information would be interrogated by a specialist who previously had been a pathologist or geneticist, but it's becoming even more complex than that. And there are, there are um, uh, those in the know who are predicting that there'll be a wholly different specialization within medicine uh, a genomicist whose sole job it is to look at the entire landscape of a patient's genome and understand how that plays uh, a role in their disease state. No, that makes sense because otherwise, you know, the whole education system of how to train the doctors would have to change. We'll have to incorporate all these technological advances so that, you know, the physicians that are uh, being, you know, trained to take over someday as, you know, primary care physicians or emergency medicine or any other area, cardiologists, they would need to interpret all these and that requires so much more effort. So that makes sense to keep this as a specialized field. Now, as the effort intensifies to make a functional DNA search engine, 
the genomic data must be organized so that humans can read and search it this is so much like a big data problem it is uh, more of a big data problem and it comes with inherent big data complexities and security risk how secure it is from your assessment so um there's two aspects to to unpacking that question one is the security associated with the actual patient's data and the other is the security associated with the the empirical knowledge that's codified in these databases and so the former obviously has much more inherent security risk because of the the um, ethical issues associated with patient autonomy and the protection of their private patient information. Uh, and so there are very strict measures in place for who can handle that patient-specific data and when and how and how it can be disseminated or shared or copied. So all of that has been um, enforced, um, perfected in the genomic era. But there's, an, there's the other question of this information that's publicly available in databases. And so the challenge with keeping more security in that space is that you've, you necessarily, I think, limit access and limit ability to um, understanding and, and, and um, comprehension of all that data that's available and all the information that's available that would otherwise be publicly available. And so there's less security associated with that data. In fact, there are movements is to free that data, to get it outside of paywalls, to move it from the proprietary space where it may have been developed by individual companies and make that data widely available. And so we can, I haven't thought much about the risks associated with that security challenge, but there's definitely well understood and um, I think adequately dealt with issues associated with patient-specific data and its um, associated securities. With respect to the knowledge in the public space, there's great benefit in understanding data and making it publicly available. And so that is the movement that we're seeing um, from the, the database perspective that is in contradistinction to the patient-specific data. That makes sense. Now, is all the, the there is not just one organization like yours who is trying to develop the search engine. There are so many other organizations also uh, having similar efforts. So, is, uh, is the library that is being developed, the genomic data library, it is oriented towards healthcare professionals or consumers? Because from what I am uh, getting the information is that some organizations are trying to. Uh, serve the consumers directly and uh, most of the organizations are still trying to keep the data available or accessible to only the healthcare professionals. So that is one question. The other is, uh, is there any collaborative effort between all these organizations or e each individual organizations like yours, are they working in silo? So it's the direct-to-consumer issue and then the sort of competitive landscape. So let me address the direct-to-consumer issue to begin with. Um, I want to be careful how I, how I phrase the answer, but you're right to have a little bit of pause in understanding the direct-to-consumer marketplace for genomic sequencing. Genetics is complicated, and it involves statistics, and historically, that is uh, a very challenging, both of those separately but put together, is a very challenging um, field to understand as a layperson. 
And the specter of direct-to-consumer genetic information, particularly where it impacts health uh, and disease diagnosis and disease treatment, that is fraught with potential issues, misunderstandings. And so it is clearly the age of information and there's, a, there's, there's great benefit to having empowered and fully informed patients, but there's also the possibility that too much information can cause challenges, can cause issues for those patients. So that's the first thing to say, and I'm, I'm couching that answer in terms of valid, medical, medically relevant and clinically sound information. So that's still a challenge. And even after it comes as being vetted by a clinician. But the other aspect of direct-to-consumer um, genomic sequencing data that's a challenge is, is um, it's sort of non-sure. You, you could say um, on a bad day, you could call that pseudoscience. And steal of information that could otherwise seem to be relevant and seem to have an impact and seem to inform the way you should live your life to its best effect. But the data doesn't necessarily exist in many of those situations. And so there's the risk that the consumer can be taken advantage of by false promises. And I don't want to go into any specifics, but there are situations that are already unfolding where that's a, a, um, a rising concern, particularly from the medical genetics community. But it's also, there's a duality or a tension there because genetics doesn't want to be paternalistic. They, they actually pride themselves as a community and, and uh, as do molecular pathologists of sharing their knowledge and sharing their information and ensuring that the patient is well informed. The risk that you run with direct-to-consumer is that that relationship is not there and the, the ability to communicate that knowledge just doesn't exist in the mass market scenario. And so there's a lot of that risk associated with the DTC or direct-to-consumer movement, but there's an appetite for it. There's an appetite for this knowledge in, in the, in the um, consumer space, and so it remains to be seen where that homeostasis will be struck, where I think right now there's a little bit of, of um, undue enthusiasm in the direct-to-consumer market, but there is still meaningful data there. And so, as I said, it'll be important for the providers of that information to recognize those um, tensions. Of now, course. the other aspect that you, you asked about was comp competition within the database space. And so I, I mentioned the word proprietary. Uh, there's, a, there's a great deal of proprietary information that has been generated by companies who have access to patient data through various products and services that they uh, offer consumers. Um, and that information is really the value in their company. And so there's, there's reluctance on their part to share fully that data. There are other companies who recognize that there's great mutual benefit in making that data available. So you see that in, in aspects of, of scientific publication, it's the open access movement. And there's the recognition among large publishing houses that they thrive when they share information. Um, owning the data, they can help facilitate knowledge creation and refinement of knowledge. And so in the database space, 
there, there is also that tension that I described similarly in uh, the direct-to-consumer space between the medical community and the lay community. Um, there are companies who are at the forefront of, of this free data or open access data movement, and then there are other companies who are more slow to adopt, but I think there's general consensus that we're doing the entire field a disservice by not making that information more widely available. I mean, the, the, you are right about it, that there are you know, risk and rewards in these, and, but one thing we do see as a market trend in other industries is the sharing economy. Right. That is becoming so popular. So who knows, you know, in the coming years, uh, all the organizations may see the benefits of sharing the data so that the advances can happen more rapidly. So that is one, you know, uh, factor that needs to be considered how fast we want to advance this field and how much uh, we want to achieve from that. Now, the other point that you mentioned is about the uh, why not to give the data immediately to all the consumers. I mean, there is appetite, like you said, and consumers want to understand more, but they don't all not necessarily have the uh, technical understanding or depth right. understanding of how to interpret data. So that is also there, but so maybe, you know, in some sort of a simpler form, some data should be provided. Like, you know, if we do a DNA analysis and find that we have lactose intolerance, then right. if that information is made available to consumers, in an easily understandable format, then we can create awareness and education and force the change that they don't, you know, uh, drink the dairy with uh, lactose in it, and then they're conscious. So those kind of positive changes also can be brought. But again, it's a very complex, you know, challenge. We have to uh, manage a lot of different variables to make sure that uh, the right benefit and the right advantages comes from that. But as far as the analysis and interpretation of genomic data goes, do you feel that uh, that mar it is still fragmented, that the market is still fragmented? It, yes, it's very fragmented. It's early days. And I think that's important to emphasize. There's a great deal of enthusiasm and energy in the market. Um, uh, it has been likened to the early days of semiconductor technology, where it was clear that there would be benefit, but it wasn't clear yet how that benefit would be capitalized, right? How it would be delivered, how it would be put to best effect, and we're finding similar situations, at least sort of at a high level, sequencing marketplace. And um, there's, there's low-hanging fruit, there's patient populations that are certain to benefit, that have already been benefiting from genome sequencing in its earliest iteration, and those are the patients who are most likely to benefit in the very near term from these technological advances because their data comes out faster. There's more of it to make more informed uh, molecular diagnostic decisions. And we can sequence more of those patients because of the cost efficiency now um, as a result of those technological advances. And so that's where most of the energy is put commercially in the marketplace. But as, as you can imagine, it will eventually sort of spill over into new patients who would benefit, new approaches to sequencing that we can talk a little bit about, um, new methods of delivery of that information. And so those are the things that you're starting to see emerge in the marketplace. But again, it's so early in, in the development of this new field that it's, it's not yet clear 
what the the bellwethers will be and who will emerge um, whether it's going to be multiple modalities or a single modality multiple entities or, or a, a small number of entities that much is not clear yet and um, I would I would hate to hazard a guess for fear of being wrong no, you're right. It is not clear. You're absolutely right. So as far as your organization, Genominon, goes, what is the vision? Where are you all trying to go with uh, what you are developing? So there's, there's one thing that I wanted to unpack there when you talked about the diagnostic challenge with all this data. And we were talking about it in the context of direct-to-consumer information. And I don't want to get too technical or mathematical, but there are challenges associated with big data that um, that are intrinsic to pathology in general but are writ large with big data and that is um, sensitivity issues and specificity issues so false negatives or things that you should have found that you missed and false positives things that you think you found but in fact you probably shouldn't have and those things errors of, of analysis complicate the interpretation of genetic data even more so than um, understanding the biology as either a, a layperson or a primary care physician or even a trained molecular pathologist or geneticist um, and it's it made more difficult in the context of that mathematical landscape in addition to the complicated biology and the complicated risk models that are occasioned by even understanding the fully accurate and validated data. And so to, to wrap up the answer to your specific question, Genomenon is really positioning itself to understand all the data, to have unfettered access to all this information in the, in the medical literature and in, in the public space, and, and leverage our, our understanding of the genome and that data in context to inform more enhanced more automated um, decision support is probably the best way to say it because we do not ever expect to render interpretations to the data but rather render what we consider to be uh, an assessment of the data based on evidence that can then be assessed more fully by a trained human professional so our fullest vision of genomenon is to take the knowledge base that we're building and the genetic search engine called Mastermind and leverage all of that information and annotation understand holistically what's going on in a single patient or a cohort of patients to better diagnose and treat and understand the um, the prognosis of certain diseases that that's great vision so what is the the genetic search engine that you talked about Mastermind how does it uh, work effectively if somebody, some organization wants to subscribe to that or get understanding about uh, some genetic variants, then how do they go for that? Do they have to be member or is it publicly available? They just you know, have a search query and they get all the uh, response to that? So yes, it's a commercial entity through a subscription model and we're working on other mechanisms of delivery of that data at present. But right now it's, it's a licensed model and it's, a, it's meant to mimic the, the, um, the way that users interact with Google. It's basically a blank slate when you're searching, and Mastermind is intended to allow you to input any information that you want uh, as a clinical user from any disease in the whole spectrum of human diseases, which is many thousands of disease entities, 
any one of tens of thousands of different genes, and then any one of literally billions of possible genetic variants, any combination of those three elements can be used as search terms into the Mastermind search engine. And then what Mastermind has, has done is organize all of the information by asking every one of those questions combinatorially beforehand. So the, the user will enter a simple search and Mastermind will have searched for that particular information before and will serve up the results it right down to the primary evidence or the source of that information, including the uh, full text literature if that's available to the user. So that is how the Mastermind search engine works. It's meant to organize the information necessary for the human user to render their interpretations for clinical purposes. Great. So what, what challenges do you foresee in the coming years? And if you had to change something about the way these search engines are developed or how these uh, diagnose, not only just diagnostic genomics, but the entire whole genome sequencing and the benefits that we can get out of it, how that entire industry, the emerging industry operates, where would you like more focus to be? That's a good question. So um, there's always the speed element, right? It can never be fast enough. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that you want the information to be um, rashly put together, but the, the quicker the information comes to the attention of the user, the better. And there's, there's sort of computational aspects to the speed of that information delivery, but I'm talking more about the delivery mechanism, how that information is presented to the, so that they're, they're maximizing their interaction with that information and they're minimizing the risk that they're missing relevant content. And so that's a constant struggle of what to put forward and what to deprecate. Um, our, our, our modus operandi is to show as much as we can, but to prioritize that information at a high level for need to know versus potentially beneficial. And that's, as I said, that's always a work in evolution and we can continually get better at that uh, challenge. But then that, that also has to do with the accuracy of the data. So there's, there's measures of comprehensiveness that we have um, in terms of content coverage and in terms of uh, precise entities within each of those aspects of the content that we need to get better at pulling out. And that's a work in evolution. We're very good at it now but we're never satisfied until we get, as I said, as close as we can to that absolute comprehensiveness. And then as I, as I mentioned, most appropriately delivering that data, which is merging onto that automated interpretation that we talked about, getting ever closer to that. Yes, data delivery, I see your point there. Now, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially the young minds, across nations who are really passionate and who wants to make a difference and who wants to try to innovate and come up with new ideas and innovations to help this you know emerging industry where would you like them to focus on what you would like them to do so there is great power in understanding both the computational aspects of genome sequencing and in understanding the biology and i feel like um, where we've made great strides as a community. One of the, the challenges um, that we've yet to really surmount is the, the difficulty of identifying individuals who know both. 
who can hold both computational aspects and biological aspects within the same mind. And so there's, there's no shortage of individuals willing to collaborate, but there's something special that occurs when one individual or a collection of individuals understand both. That's where you really start to exponentiate your progress. And I feel like um, to a large extent, that's where our company has benefited. We have a number of very talented individuals who understand both aspects simultaneously and can innovate uh, very rapidly and make dramatic advances uh, with, a, with a single you know, epiphany. So coding, you must learn how to code. I feel like that's, that's sort of a, a blanket recommendation in any discipline. But then specifically in this field, understanding a solid foundation of, of biology and clinical medicine, and then marrying that to your ability to code and, and um, the sky's the limit for you in this field. Very true, very true. And that is an excellent you know, suggestion and advice for all those young minds who want to make a difference, who want to contribute in uh, uh, going, having some positive advances for not only the healthcare sector, but for each and every industry by understanding this you know, basic uh, fundamentals about the uh, human health, human diseases, human medicine and the you know uh, technological advances they can collectively integrate all that knowledge and uh, collectively we can uh, take great strides in you know developing what we want to develop by the understanding of whole genome sequencing and how to help human health you know across nations so thank you so much dr mark kyle for participating in risk roundup today we appreciate your thoughtful insight on genome search engine diagnostic genomics and uh, whole genome sequencing and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the complex challenges facing the genome interpretation for disease diagnosis and where the efforts needs to be so even if a single individual across nations can come up with an idea to advance this genome interpretation based on the understanding they receive from the discussion we had today the risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So as genome companies are trying to be the search engine for personalized medicine, it is important to evaluate its impact and the strategic security risks that are associated with it. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.